Hot. All right, here we go. Uh, Thank you all for attending the Earthquake Science Center weekly seminar series. If you are new, welcome. If you would like to be added to our email distribution group, please send us an email. Seminars are recorded and mostly all talks are posted on the USGS Earthquake Science Center webpage. Closed captioning can be turned on by clicking on the CC icon on the More tab at the top of the page. Attendees, please mute your mics and turn off your cameras until the Q&A session at the end of the talk. Submit your questions via the chat at any time or wait to turn on your camera and ask your question during the Q&A session. Um, so announcements for this week. Uh, September is National Preparedness Month. Are you prepared? Um, <laughs> are you ready for any disaster or emergency? Uh, you can take control in not one, not two, but three easy steps. Um, assess your needs for everyone in your home. Don't forget your pets. Um, number two, make a plan. Uh, once you assess your needs, plan what you need to do, uh, where you would go, and what you need to bring if a disaster occurred. And finally, step number three, um, engage your support network. Get to know your neighbors. Like family and friends, they can provide emotional and practical support in times like these. Um, there will be no seminar next week because um, Next week is SCEC. Folks may either still be in Palm Springs or will have arrived late that night. So we are skipping next week. Um, uh, everybody should save the date for September 28th at 6 p.m. Um, our very own Ola Kavan will present the public lecture titled Geothermal Energy Research Within the USGS. Goldilocks to Electricity Within Earthquakes in Between or with Earthquakes in Between. Google the link for the USGS public lecture or use the link in the chat. Um, and finally, um, we are looking for a speaker for September 20th um, after SCEC. So if anybody has any nominations or has seen a great talk recently, we are very excited to solicit um, additional folks. Um, with that, I'd like to turn it over to Justin, who's going to introduce our speaker, Riley, today. Thanks, Curtis, for the informative uh, introduction. Um, so it's my pleasure to introduce today's speaker, Riley Hill. Uh, Riley is finishing up his PhD in the joint program of San Diego State and Scripps, um, where he's been working on what we'll be hearing about today, as well as a lot of uh, numerical modeling and induced seismicity problems, doing some really interesting stuff. Um, Originally, though, Riley was actually a math and physics student. He did his uh, bachelor's in math and physics at University of Nevada, Reno, and actually did a IRIS internship and discovered that he liked earth science and geophysics and came to the dark side. <laughs> uh, and so he did a master's in geophysics at UNR as well. Um, so today he's going to be talking about some of his recently published uh, research that came out in Nature, I believe, in June, caused a little bit of a hubbub. Uh, looking at relationship uh, between Southern San Andreas earthquakes and the filling uh, of Lake Coila down in Southern California. So take it away, right? Thank you. Thank you guys so much for having me. This is a truly a great honor. So thank you so much. Um, so I wanted to also just touch on a few little points about me as well. Um, I, uh, I've been working on this work that I want to share with you today. Uh, but uh, I've also been really interested in inter-seismicity, um, seismic hazard mitigation sort of things, um, and optimization uh, problems. With this in mind, um, really excited about the future of carbon sequestration. Um, looking forward to hopefully working with Ola in the future. Um, I'm also super excited about machine deep learning type, type things. And because of climate change, I've recently been getting into hydrology and hydrogeodesy problems as well. Um, and this picture right here is a is me on Painted Canyon, if anyone is familiar with the Salton Trough area, um, overlooking uh, the Salton Trough. And you can see I'm pointing actually not at the, the lake, the current remnant of uh, Lake Cahia. Uh, the reason being my, my partner what, that I took with me up to this hike, um, I asked her if I was pointing at the lake and she said, yeah, it looks good, looks good, but it uh, was not good. Um, was uh, was really hot uh, that day and uh, we wanted to get down from the mountain, so that's uh, that's what I'm left with. Um, so here's a little roadmap of uh, what we're going to be talking about. I'm going to do a little motivation introduction about the problem, um, some background on poor elasticity, 
which uh, reveals some really interesting uh, concepts that will help explain the sort of model results. And then um, I'm going to have some sort of conclusion uh, and implications of uh, the work uh, for the future of uh, sort of hydrologic loads in general. So um, it's no surprise that one of the most intriguing faults uh, in all of California is the San Andreas Fault, and particularly the Southern San Andreas Fault. Um, and that's because it poses the largest seismic hazard in all of California. Um, this uh, is a this picture right here is a model uh, run, a simulation run of a of a large event on the Southern San Andreas Fault uh, with the northward propagating rupture. And this is a peak ground velocity map. And you can see in LA, you know, it's going to be experiencing a lot of damage. It's sort of like a bathtub. The the energy will swish around uh, back and forth. So this fault. Um, has also been uh, studied uh, geodetically, and it is suggested that uh, you know this fault is locked and loaded, uh, as Yuri likes to say sometimes. Um, so you know, understanding this fault's history and what it what it means to uh, to the future uh, is, is is critically important. Um, and so, uh, Bell Philip Ocean at the USGS had a really great paper uh, looking at the paleoseismic history of this fault. And it was done at the Coachella site uh, here to the north on the southern San Andreas Fault. You can see my cursor, hopefully, or it's a little lagged. Okay, <laughs> that's where it. Um, and this uh, earthquake history is really interesting when we look at it in more detail. So these are what's called probability density functions of the earthquake uh, timings. And since about a thousand years ago, the earthquakes occurred pretty much every 180 years, plus or minus 40 years. But Currently, we sit on a 300-year open interval, and that le has left a lot of people scratching their heads. You know, why is that? Why are we sitting on this current open interval? So perhaps the answer here is what's called ancient Lake Cahia. And ancient Lake Cahia was a vast uh, lake uh, that was 150 to 50 kilometers in area with uh, a maximum lake level of about 100 meters. So that produces a, a very large load at the surface of the Earth. And this would periodically fill from the Colorado River uh, changing course uh, and filling the salt and trough as opposed to its current exit out into the Gulf of California. And, you know, this correlation or this potential correlation between earthquakes on the fault, the Southern San Andreas Fault, and the lake uh, has been hinted at since uh, since earliest times about the 1980s. And there's been a several paleoseismic studies as well as uh, uh, modeling studies that have looked at uh, at this uh, sort of correlation. Um, and a lot of the evidence suggested that there was a weak correlation or that the modeling results showed that the stress changes were also weak. Um, but hopefully our results will sort of change your mind and perspective on this. So here's a picture of Tom and I um, in front of Lake 3. Um, and you can see I'm clearly cheery in this picture. And this was after I had to dig a hole, or sorry, this was before I had to dig a hole all day looking for uh, carbon um, uh, samples in the in the ground. So he was pretty smart to take that picture beforehand. Um, and that was probably the only last time I was out there because <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm definitely a computer guy. So this is <laughs> a rare picture of me in the field. Um, so this uh, this work by Rockwell in 2022 was, was pretty profound. So long story short, he had basically three uh, different lake models developed based off different sampling uh, assumptions um, from several different paleoseismic sites around the Lake Cahia inundation zone. And this put really strong constraints on the timing of uh, ancient Lake Cahia. And this, the timing of ancient Lake Cahia is, is very important in the paleoseismic studies because the timing of the lakes inform the timing of the earthquakes and especially when you reinterpret the stratigraphy. And this is, a, I'm not going to shy away from it, is one of the probably the most controversial aspects of this work uh, is the reinterpretations of the stratigraphy. So I want to spend a little bit of talking about this. This is a, a, a picture, by the way, of the OxCal model that we that we use. This is a six page uh, OxCal you know, output. So this is just a, a subsample of it. But so where earthquake horizons lie is mostly unchanged uh, from Bell's work. And the main difference here actually is that six of the past seven earthquake horizons lie within lacrustrian sediments. Lacrustrian sediments is lake sediments. And the main difference here is that 
the earthquake ages, uh, the timing of them are a result of reclassifying the sediments as lacrustrin um, and assuming that all of the organic material came uh, from within the lake. So you go out there and you look around and there's really no organic material to be found. It's a desert, right? So Tom uh, is, you know, is pretty uh, convinced that a lot of the organic material came from when the lake was actually existing and that it washed up on the shoreline. And, you know, Bell uh, and him were in personal communication and he's a co-author on this study. So I like to say this has nothing to do with uh, my my part of the job, but it is it is it's you know I, it is important to to really understand this. So we can talk about this in more detail afterwards if people are curious. But uh, but yeah. So when you take the lake ages and combine this with the stratigraphy of the earthquake timings, you get a um, very clear and obvious correlation uh, between the lake timings, which are the light blue polygons, and the earthquake timings, which are these colored PDFs. So uh, this correlation. Um, is pretty profound when you look at it for, at this figure. Um, and these data sets, again, are not, you know, dependent from another, uh, or sorry, they're they're not independent, they're, they're dependent on one another. And this correlation alone is not enough, though, to suggest a causal relationship. And the reason here is that uh, the modeling efforts previously done by uh, Luttrell um, and, uh, and brothers and, and others, um, suggested a, a pretty weak uh, um, forcing by the lake on the southern San Andreas Fault. And the reasons uh, that is, uh, and I'll explain in more detail, are assumptions in the model of they use of the Earth. It's mostly elastic, and it doesn't involve fully coupled poor elastic theory, a fault damage zone on the fault, um, and a dipping fault. And all those things contribute to CFS changes, coolant failure stress changes that uh, contribute to failure. So before we get into that, let's just pose a sort of hypothetical model, right? If we assume that the Southern San Andreas Fault has some sort of critical shear stress that when reached will cause it to fail, then perhaps because of uh, the tectonic loading, uh, bringing in um, a stress equivalent to 18 millimeters per year of slip, then the lake might effectively modulate that cycle and contribute to enough stress triggering an event and might explain why, since 1725, the last time of a, a lake, why we haven't also had an earthquake on uh, the Southern San Andreas Fault uh, currently. So before we get into there, I want to talk about some of the poroelastic um, theory involved here. And there are those books written about poroelastic theory, uh, and I'm going to try to synthesize it sort of down into three uh, three slides. So wish me luck. <laughs> um, so everyone should be familiar with Moore Coulomb uh, failure. Uh, it's one of our classic things that we learn in geology. And this is a, uh, just a quick refresher that, you know, there's some sort of critical shear stress, uh, this red line, that when reached by a fault uh, will cause it to fail. Uh, that's sort of the theory. And, you know, the size of this circle will actually change uh, due to poroelastic stresses. But most importantly here is that increasing pore pressure always reduces uh, uh, a fault stability and promotes failure. So this concept of coolant failure stress uh, is really important as I'll be talking about it and have slides about uh, the model results using it. So the poroelastic theory, uh, splitting, I'm going to split it up into sort of two concepts. One is the undrained response. So if we imagine um, a poroelastic half space, and we apply an instantaneous load to the surface. This is an example of a lake. You increase uh, compressional stress beneath the, the, the lake instantaneously through the medium. That's what these uh, compressive stresses look like. Similarly, due to the poroelastic nature between the solid to fluid coupling, you increase the pore pressure within the grains immediately as well. That's called the undrained response. And that happens again instantaneously when the lake or, or any sort of surface load gets applied. Through time, as time increases, that fluid will diffuse out and, re and reach equilibrium throughout the, that space. The second component is the drained response. The drained response is that fluid diffusion term that um, uh, uh, moves the pore pressure through the through the medium. So when the lake is applied instantaneously, the pore pressure at that surface is pretty negligible. Then as time progresses, 
that pore pressure will diffuse down based off of the hydromechanical properties in the medium. Now, the undrained and the drained response combine at the same time, and that's the whole that's the whole gist of pore elastic theory that these two components combine. And I wanted to include some of these slides about the one dimensional solution because anyone who's looking to do a quick back of the envelope calculation in any sort of study region from natural or anthropogenic can quickly do this. And of course, it's paying homage to Evelyn Roloff's uh, here at the USGS who developed this in 1988. So if we imagine sort of one dimensional uh, material, this sort of line of bricks and apply a surface load that has a, a periodic fluctuation uh, in its on, in its surface. Um, the general solution of it is is given here. The pressure uh, at certain uh, depth and time is based off of what's called the complex uh, pressure, which is a function of two components, the undrained and the drained response that we just talked about. So this component right here um, is really is really powerful because pressure, the PS term here, is uh, is it's linear in this equation. So we can actually pull this pressure uh, uh, term out. Um, retailer it in the frequency domain using a Green's function that uses a, a single point diffusion uh, through time at the surface and dictate any sort of surface load that we want. So here's a sort of toy model of um, the lake history uh, represented by a relative amplitude. And each of these um, humps right here are, are different uh, uh, lakes uh, from the previous uh, work by, by, by Tom. So this is sort of just saying, you know, a, a step function uh, when the lake was on and then it goes to zero when the lake was off. So we just have you know, six step functions. Now we can take this in the frequency frequency domain and put that back into the uh, complex amplitude equation that I just showed you and split apart both the undrained and the drained response beneath uh, the surface load. So this would be a uh, sort of quick back, back the envelope calculation of trying to get the uh, poor uh, the poor pressure term from any sort of hydrologic load. So what you see here is that pore pressure term split up between those two parts. The first is this uh, is this red, uh, oh, these red humps, right? And these red humps are, again, they, sh they look exactly like the surface load of the lake. And that's because it is um, the undrained response, right? It's that instantaneous load of the, sur uh, of the surface going all the way through the medium through depth time and so it obviously will look exactly like the surface load the second term um, is the blue and this blue is the diffusion aspect which as as later time progresses starts to diffuse out and based off of the diffusivity right so this is a higher diffusivity and this is a lower diffusivity the pore pressure term will sort of get stretched out as it's taking longer to diffuse uh, through time and so both of these components, the undrained and the drained response here, uh, contribute uh, to the pore pressure. I want, I want to mention too, this gamma term is what drives everything here too. This gamma term if, is what's called the loading efficiency. And so if we set the loading efficiency to zero, um, then this term would go away, right? And you would only be left with the second term, one minus zero, right? And it would be just the diffusion term going through the model. Now, if we set uh, gamma to be one, which is the same as incompressible grains um, and fluid, then the diffusion term goes to zero and you're left entirely with just the undrained response, the red, the red humps. OK, so this is this is the toy model, right? Um, we can now take this uh, and actually look at Lake Cahia with just just the consideration of being directly beneath the lake um, through uh, through this one dimensional solution, right? And using the Green's function to look at uh, the surface load. So what you see here in black is the pressure at the surface of Lake Cahia. Again, those six humps. And beneath that, at different depths, the, the pressure, the combined undrained and drained response. So these two, uh, this figure shows some interesting aspects, right? At really uh, uh, deep depths, the, 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 the pressure again, behaves just like the undrained response, right? It looks exactly like a rectangle. And that undrained response um, is because it's that instantaneous fluid to solid coupling. And then as time progresses, that the undrained response of subsequent lakes compounds and constructively with the diffusion of the previous lakes. And that's really fascinating here because 
This means that subsequent lakes have higher pore pressure uh, than a lake by itself. And so modeling the full six lake loading cycle tells you a lot more about the pressure and the stress within the problem. Additionally, um, this is a little hint for the future, is this uh, finite element result is in green. And this is at a depth of seven kilometers. You'll notice that that uh, pore pressure uh, uh, you know, uh, plot is between one to three kilometers um, results from the, uh, the analytical solution. So at a much greater depth, we're experiencing pore pressure stress that should be associated with a shallower depth. And the reasons are, are we going to be related to the fault damage zone and the geometry of the fault itself? Okay, now let's talk about the actual model. Now that we have a good background of the pore elastic theory. So this model was developed in Abacus, um, which if anyone knows this software is very, very difficult to work with. Um, and I had to learn it from the ground up, which was not, um, which was not fun, but uh, uh, you know, it's it's good to get it, uh, you know, on in the rep report or in the pocket or whatever. Now, um, but uh, hopefully, I never have to use it again. But uh, the model that made, yeah, sorry, I'm just like trying to just completely forget about it. Um, so this is the model domain. Um, it's 600 kilometers by 600 kilometers with a 50 kilometer depth, and it has over 2 million uh, tetrahedron elements. And the only reason that we could even get a model like this to run and to, and to uh, uh, you know, express the uh, stress distribution through the, through the crust was because of uh, working with the San Diego State uh, uh, Supercomputer Lab who use uh, Abacus to, to model really complex interactions. So uh, those guys, I'm, I'm very, uh, uh, happy to have worked with and they were really helpful uh, helping me with the you know HPCs. So this uh, model also has some important initial conditions, right? We're not modeling the overall stress in the in the space. We're modeling we're modeling just the relative stress and pore pressure changes. So from like a zero equilibrium uh, condition. That way we can see the relative stress changes and we're not trying to incorporate any stress from previous earthquakes or anything like that. So again, we also do the entire six lake loading cycle. And this entire six lake loading cycle um, is based off of Rockwell's uh, lake timings. Um, more importantly is the fault. Um, so here's a sort of cross-section view of the fault uh, that, we're, that we're modeling in the model. And this fault has uh, a very important uh, property, and that's the dip um, that was constrained by Lindsay and Fialco. Uh, of 60 degrees. And this 60 degree dip, um, you'll see in the results, contributes to higher uh, coolant failure stress on the fault. And that's because you can imagine the surface load right here on the lake, it, it creates compression right beneath, but then there's also extension on the outside. And with a dipping fault, that extension is pulling apart that fault, creating it, making it easier to slip. So the last thing that's also important is that we include a fault damage zone through here um, to model uh, five different uh, varying permeabilities. And these varying permeabilities um, are, are pretty interesting to look at too, we'll see. So the hydrostratigraphy is based off of previous work in the area that um, is pretty straightforward. Uh, there's about four layers of elastic press um, and a mantle that we use to uh, model the viscoelastic uh, properties. The crystalline basement uh, is, you know, we don't do any sort of depth dependence and permeability. Um, if, if I had done, you know, abacus beforehand, I might have been able to incorporate that, but a layered cake model was the simplest way to do this. And so that's what, that's what we were left with. Um, when I, I guess I talk about the fault damage zone permeabilities, the we started a very high permeable uh, value, which was constrained by um, tidal analysis, um, which was, uh, was which is pretty high considered what's uh, what's actually observed. So we have varying permeabilities through the observed, and we also have a, a single model that assumes no fault damage zone, where it's just the same as the crystalline basement. So let's take a look at the results. We'll spend some time on um, this first figure here. So this figure right here is a. Uh, post-process results from the abacus model in MATLAB, but also the abacus model results on the left. 
So what you see here in this first slide A is the pore pressure um, of the lake and a cross-sectional view of us looking down at the fault. And so this, this highlighted red area is the plane of the fault itself. And the, we'll start here on the left at just looking at the pore pressure evolution through time. Yeah, sorry, it's pretty small. <laughs> the, um, the pore pressure here um, begins, right, when the lake uh, starts to load. And as that pore pressure by the end of the first lake uh, resolves, you can see uh, through here, uh, pore pressure values along the fault uh, have increased um, substantially. And that's because the damage zone has a higher permeability in this case, and the permeability uh, the, the pore pressure preferentially wants to go to these uh, uh, higher permeable zones and and will go down them. As the lake as Lake F ends and uh, the desiccation of F before E, the pore pressure is still within the model. This is slide this is part C. The pore pressure exists there, like we saw from the diffusion in the one-dimensional analytical solution. It hasn't fully reached equilibrium yet. And so when the next lake uh, occurs, Lake E, you get a rising pore pressure um, that's greater than the previous lake by itself. And that's because, again, that undrained response increases pore pressure and constructively interferes with the diffusion of that, uh, that other lake. Now, on the side here over here, we can look at what that looks like on the fault itself. So here's the coolant failure stress and the three major components to that to that value. First, uh, I'll talk about the pore pressure. So the, the pore pressure uh, increases rapidly right beneath the lake and will diffuse out uh, from the lake across the fault. The pore pressure is pretty much positive across the entire fault, um, except there's some, you know, uh, zero uh, values and actually some neg uh, negative pore pressure values, uh, which is uh, well, I, can, I can explain that later, but not super important. Um, the effective stress uh, is uh, really interesting because it shows that the compression of the lake right at the top of the surface creates areas of lower effective stress than actually areas at seismogenic depth, um, which is around five to, to eight kilometers. The, the reason is, is that when you apply a surface load, you create compression directly beneath, uh, right? But again, because of the dipping fault, you're creating extension um, farther away. And so that contributes to a sort of positive uh, stress here, you know, combining with the pore pressure. Shear stress is interesting. There's uh, positive shear stress near the, the center of the lake, but actually uh, negative shear stress uh, towards the middle of the, the, the lake. But those values are considerably less than the pore pressure and effective stress, so that your total coolant failure stress is relatively positive throughout the whole fault. There's some areas of negative coolant failure stress, but the, the highest values are again, surprisingly, uh, well, maybe not surprisingly, but uh, at seismogenic depth between about five and eight kilometers um, and start to sort of taper off in either direction, uh, shallow and, and deeper. So let's look at the evolution of the coolant failure stress on the fault through time. And this is a video um, of the coolant failure stress. You'll see here in a sec on the fault. And on the right is the, uh, the, the coolant failure stress through time uh, at a single point. The point being, of course, this, uh, this, black, this black dot, which represents the maximum uh, coolant stress on the fault. So as time progresses, you can see that the, the coolant failure stress constructively interferes with subsequent lakes. And so you get the second humps uh, usually being higher. And these black lines represent a ratio between the, the positive values of coolant failure stress and negative values across the entire fault interface. The, uh, the gray is anything below um, seven kilometers. So yeah, there's a lot going on here. And you'll see here at the end, I'll, I'll play it a second time too, you'll start to see the contributions of salt, of salt and sea, uh, the current uh, modern remnant. So I'll do it one more time because we have time. <laughs> uh, so you'll see here again um, the evolution as it increases when the lakes are on and starts to decrease as uh, the coolant failure stress drops down.
Um, yeah, I don't think there's anything super uh, important. Important to note too is that the coolant failure stress remains relatively positive across the whole fault, even when there is a lake uh, absent. Uh, there's no lake, so this is uh, actually very different than prior results, which suggests that you know very strong negative stresses, um, pretty much. Uh, the whole time and also when the lake uh, wasn't wasn't there. So I'm going to pause it actually because the weird, it's weird that it cuts off like this um, to talk about the salt and sea for a second. So the current remnant, right, the salt and sea also contributes to the stress change. And, you know, we talk about it a little bit more detail in the paper, but this stress change is is not insignificant, right? It's it's greater than what's considered sort of this basic 0.1 megapascal threshold. Um, and, and more importantly, as the salt and sea continues to decline, there is you know, a lowering of the coolant failure stress and the rate is negative, which suggests a small amount of clamping actually on the Southern San Andreas fault that might be actually prolonging um, uh, an earthquake, uh, but it's to a very marginal degree, right, compared to the overall tectonic stress. Okay. Just had to get out of exit out of there for a second. Okay, so we can actually also look now at the coolant failure stress uh, at a single point through time um, to look at different sensitivity tests of the model. So what I'm plotting here is is the is an area um, beneath uh, the lake um, where you saw sort of the maximum coolant failure stress at around seven kilometers depth. So each of these models again are the damage zone permeabilities. Model one is our highest permeable case. And you're getting, you know, mega, uh, megapascal coolant stress changes about, you know, 0.7. Model five is the uh, model that excludes a fault damage zone, and you're only having uh, permeability uh, sa the same as uh, the material that it cuts, so the same as the crystalline basement. And most important about this is that the coolant stress change is positive uh, pretty much throughout all the time. There's a sometimes at which it dips below zero uh, at this particular location. Um, and the second thing is that for all five models, they're greater than that sort of 0.1 megapascal triggering threshold. So every time there was a lake, you're reaching stress changes uh, sufficient for triggering. And that's and that was uh, exciting to see because that was not previously, uh, uh, you know, seen in the previous models. There was some stress changes that contributed uh, to it could have maybe modulated slightly, but these stress changes are, are 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 much are much larger. When we look at the so, there's also a lot of uh, evidence now in, in induced seismicity that the stressing rate also uh, can contribute to earthquakes. So we looked at the stressing rate of the coolant failure stress as well, and the stressing rate ends up being uh, increased by up to a factor of three compared to the tectonic loading during the times of of lake inundation. And what you see here is the PDFs and how they compare uh, with a plus or minus uh, sigma to um, uh, uh, to the to the stressing rates. Um, and again, you can see that the stressing rates actually go negative, obviously, when the lake is declining, um, but it recovers pretty quickly. Um, but there's are, there are lots of peaks here in the uh, in the seismicity rate when the uh, when the lake gets inundated. Um, we can actually take this uh, seismicity rate and formulate it um, with the Dietrich model and the Siegel and Liu formulation of, of uh, seismic, uh, seismicity rate from the coolant failure stress. And so this is uh, an example of that seismicity rate um, at a single point on the Bombay area. Again, that, that area that experiences pretty much the largest coolant stress changes. And this is a sensitivity of uh, this sort of characteristic variable. And you can see that when there's a lake, uh, the seismicity rate uh, increases uh, compared to the uh, tectonic background rate, which is one, um, up to again like near near a factor of three for some of these lakes. Um, but actually, you know, if depending on the sensitivity, uh, it could be it could be lower. What's really interesting here, which is different than the coolant failure stress rate, is that the there's a very big dip in negative um, seismicity rate with the lake right next to uh, the other one. Um, and that's because of the, the rapid changes in the, the lake inundating. So, you know, you know, the seismicity rate is very, uh, it's sort of exponentially 
um, there's an exponential relationship to the uh, to the stressing rate. So there's a uh, it's pretty sensitive here. So you also see negative seismicity rates, uh, or you know you know not negative, but you know uh, lower than tectonic rates uh, when when the lake is coming off. Um, so I'm gonna talk about a little bit of the sensitivity of the model to different parameters, uh, which might uh, be important to other people's work and in, in different hydrologic loads. So what we found was uh, when we looked at the the dip, uh, that 60 degree dip is our preferred model from the geodetic observations. But if we were to make it shallower, we get increasing cooling failure stress. Again, a shallower fault will have more of that extensional component of the lake load. Um, and for a steeper, uh, uh, you know, more vertical dipping uh, fault, um, you get lower and lower cooling failure stress. And this is important because uh, prior work used a complete, you know, uh, vertical uh, fault. Uh, a 90 degree dip uh, fault for their model. And so their coolant failure stress was 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 lower. Um, we can also look at the viscosity, see how the viscoelastic uh, properties are playing here. And we found that the viscoelastic properties uh, didn't really contribute that much change. Um, we use, uh, as suggested from prior work, a 70 year relaxation time. Um, but when we look at the sort of the two different in member cases, the 20 year and the 200 year, there's really not that much changes uh, when the lake is present. The biggest changes occur when you, you know, have a long period of relaxation for the, uh, between uh, lake loads. <clears throat> okay, so, so I'll just say some conclusions that, you know, increases in lake level uh, result in positive coolant stress change um, on the Southern San Andreas Fault, bringing it closer to failure. And these changes um, from our study are likely sufficient uh, and greater than originally uh, thought. And I mean likely sufficient for triggering. The lateral diffusion of pore pressure um, along a 60 degree dipping uh, permeable fault zone and the pore elastic effects of that sort of memory effect of the undrained component. And um, I've said this like multiple times now, um, constructively interferes with the diffusion is very important uh, to the uh, the model complexity uh, and, and to the coolant stress changes. So. Our model predicts a predominantly negative coolant stress change uh, for sufficiently long dry periods and a gradual uh, decline in coolant stress change uh, for the present open interval. Um, and as the salt and sea level continues to decline, we also are experiencing coolant stress change uh, decline on the fault as well, although it's very marginal compared to the overall tectonic load. Um, so what does this mean uh, for the implications of future work, right? So. There is a, a pretty famous earthquake in China called the Wenchuan earthquake, which has been suggested to have triggered due to uh, reservoir impoundment from the Zipingu reservoir. And what's really fascinating about this uh, this study um, was a couple of things. So compared to our work where the Coulomb stress was certainly significant to trigger an event, they found that the Coulomb failure stress at the hypocenter of this Wenchuan earthquake was actually uh, probably not sufficient to trigger the earthquake. However, uh, the reservoir increased coolant failure stress across the fault from the surface down to depth. So you have effectively weakened the fault across the uh, from the low to shallow uh, point of the fault. And then they have suggested, and another paper has looked mm -hmm. at uh, the slip the slip of this, is that potentially uh, a small event could have created a cascading of, of failure of, of the asperities that are now weaker across uh, all of the, the fault. And so this might actually be applicable to our study area as well. Uh, we'll have to see when the next earthquake occurs on the Southern San Andreas Fault. You know, will all of that stress be released at once? I mean, hopefully not, but you know, is this stress going to be broken up into little bits? I mean, hopefully. And maybe the reason we, it, it doesn't happen is because you haven't weakened a larger portion of that fault with the increasing coolant failure stress. But this remains to be seen, and we don't really talk about that in the paper. Um, and this is also really important for anyone that's going to build a reservoir to not you know, build it near uh, you know, an active fault zone, because um, you're going to, again, contribute to failure across that whole fault. So um, we can look at other uh, natural uh, instances besides anthropogenic ones as well. And the Dead Sea, uh, is also uh, pretty fascinating. Um, there's been a lot of work recently that have suggested a correlation between uh, earthquakes and lake level rise on on uh, the the Dead Sea. So uh, we're excited to see where where things go from here. Um, and I'll uh, 
I'll stop. I'll stop there. Um, ask any questions, I guess. So thank you. Can you, uh, I'm going to turn on the camera here, but we actually tested it on that computer over here. So it was, it was great talk, really, really interesting stuff. I have Thanks. a lot of questions. <laughs> I'll, I'll keep it to one. Yeah. Uh, you know, obviously there's a lot of variables here as far as et cetera. But let's say we stay in our sort of current status. You know, there's no refilling of this, this paleo lake. You know. Assuming current tectonic loading rates, when should we expect them? <laughs> uh, I'm not gonna try. I'm not, I'm not gonna try to very quickly get it. Um, that's a good question. The, uh, you know, I got uh, I, I the, the earthquake uh, recurrence interval. If we were to just look at it objectively, like Poissonian distribution between the earthquake times, the you know, we currently sit, and this is with Tom and Philip Oceans, both of their earthquake times, when we look at either of them, the, uh, you know, the probability of having an earthquake is greater than 95% in both cases, right? So this is, uh, you know, it's locked and loaded. It's, I, I, I would expect it to go at any time um, soon. And, and if, if it's salt and sea continues to decline, um, again, that's very marginal to the overall tectonic load, so. So um, I guess following on that question, uh, maybe some of you can speak to more, uh, is what does what do your results apply about the nature of the earthquakes that occur? So you've got this sort of triggering effect. You have spike in stress, but it's geographically localized compared to the tectonic loading. And we have major you know, play boundary loading going on in the mm. background. So you accelerate it and you're getting shorter intervals between those places because of that acceleration or are you getting shorter intervals if you have the same sort of spike every time well that's a good question so so yeah that's actually really interesting so the uh the longest intervals technically are when uh the lake is is, is absent so i this uh the whole actually lake history goes back two thousand years we only modeled a thousand years back 2000 years ago was the was like the oldest lake that we have good measurements of and then it's actually about a thousand years before the next uh for the next lake and the earthquake uh the earthquakes between there are, are 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 there's hardly any so there might actually there's other there's also a bunch of suggestions too that you know super cycles are at play here so maybe all of the stress released itself in this past a thousand years, but the Southern San Andreas Fault might have a much longer super cycle period where we don't see earthquakes uh, until, you know, a, you know, a certain certain time frame. So uh, hopefully that answers the question. But between the lake loading itself, uh, we do see when there are lakes, there are earthquakes. But again, that's based off of the interpretations of the paleo seismic history. Yeah. I guess the sort of corollary or counterpart of this question is, so that's time intervals modulation. Are, do the earthquakes that occur have less slip? Are they sort of less potent because you haven't built up the really sort of serious tectonic strain, mm. strain mm. that's important at the plate boundary, right? I mean, the, the lakes that trigger the earthquake, but they're not yep. moving the fault one. Well, these these earthquakes are all large events, and that's from the you you can see like liquefact liquefaction in the in the in the, in the things which only occur you know uh, greater magnitudes. So these events uh, that are labeled here, uh, besides I think one of them uh, out of the seven, is are are considered large or even major events. So that's that, but we'll have to see, right? They're not we have no have a historical calculation on that. Right, so but yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. In this case, the higher wave level produces the photoelastic stress change that encourages earthquakes, and the elastic, the purely elastic response would provide climbing stress from the default. Was the elastic response also like 
Uh, like, did we look at just a purely elastic model? Is that a kind of question? Oh, um, oh, right. Yeah. So, uh, uh, so you can see uh, one. Uh, this a good way to think about this too is I think that you uh, would split up. You can't really do it right because it's fully coupled. But the what you could kind of make out from the what's the the undrained response. So just that purely uh, load to to fluid coupling effect. And in this poor elastic uh, solution, because it's saturated, the pore pressure will rise instantaneously. And actually, our our largest contribution we think or it pretty clearly is that is is actually that loading effect. And it has to do with the, 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 the pore fluid already being there within the crust. So the uh, the pore for the diffusion aspect is 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 uh, is, is a second tier to that undrained effect from the elastic load. Yeah. I have a question. Yeah, nice spot. Thank you. So as I understand it, the biggest change in the Coulomb failure function is due to the essentially unclamping of the fault because it's dipping away from the leg and the fluid pressure diffusion into the fault. So you yeah. unclamp, you reduce the normal stress that promotes failure, but there's a shear stress component too, which you showed, and the shear stress for sure traction is highly directional. So looking at Coulomb stress change and impact on propensity for failure, it matters what the ambient tectonic stress is. Mm. You see, if you impose a left lateral shear stress on a right mm. lateral fault, you're going to delay triggering and vice versa, you'll promote it for right lateral on a right lateral. So, have you considered the ambient stress field? It, it looked like yeah. the load was asymmetric. I mean, it looked like we had shear stress off to the northwest. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Intuitively, I would think that would be right lateral for a load like this. So, did you consider the, the traction induced by the leg and superimposing on the tectonic? Does it matter, or is everything just all about reduction in effect? That's a, good, that's a really good question. Um, so the sh the shear stress is uh, uh, or you know, um, our modeled we we uh, we we looked at a couple different things. We looked at the, the directional influence, um, um, and we also looked at absolute shear. So uh, we found that even in all cases, uh, that the shear stress is pretty marginal. To the overall stress changes, the effective normal stress being the, the biggest one at play. So, so in this case, the ambient tectonic stress regime doesn't matter as much as if the shear stress was the primary induced stress or something. Uh, yeah. It, well, so relative changes, uh, uh, the 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 lake is contributing, uh, you know, a certain amount. Tectonically, though, those stresses are considerably larger. So, but we yeah like. Just the relative change from the lake itself. Um, it, you know, I, we <laughs> when we first tried to submit this and stuff, we wanted to actually look at the overall stress change based off like a dislocation model. Um, um, and that stress change, how much did the stress of the lake like compare to the overall stress change of the tectonic loading? And it's actually around like 25% that we got. So, so if that kind of answers your question, um, you know, it's significant. But it's, yeah. Yeah, it's significant, and it, it's it becomes smaller, of course, when you have longer open intervals, because now that stress is accumulated, 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 and any sort of modulation on that overall stress is like, you know, smaller. Yeah. Got some online questions that um, I've been waiting for a minute. So, uh, Tom Hanks, you want to unmute yourself and ask your question? <laughs> Tom, we can't hear you. I think you may have muted yourself. Okay, so let's do it this way. There we uh, go. And my question has to do with um, how do you um, how do you estimate the duration of the high stand, and and then when the lake begins to dry up, you take it all the way down to zero lake. But what happens if it just uh, uh, just goes down to half full? And of course, you know, that shoreline will probably never be available to you. Uh, so the questions involve, um, yeah, how do you really distinguish the high stand um, from, um, from where the lake is just before it begins to fall? And then you have it precipitously uh, drying up. And that raises a third question. If if you had a full lake 
and then you had no additional contributions from the river, how long would it take to dry up? Okay, that's a really good question. Um, so uh, the timings of uh, lake inundation is about 13 years and the desiccation 50 years. And this was this is well constrained by uh, Tom Rockwell's work and his 2018 paper where he looks at the uh, the loading uh, or the the filling rates of the last two uh, lakes. The uh, uh, for the model, this is uh, was actually an interesting point that you make, and one of the reviewers commented on this. So, at first, we modeled uh, a filling rate where we said, okay, across the entire perimeter. I'll just get a picture actually of the. So here's a picture of the model across this entire lake um, using this perimeter here. Um, we fill up the lake um, proportionately based off of this uh, this filling rate. So, you know, if it was 25% full, it's 25% full across that whole area, which obviously is not what the reality would be. The reality would be near Bombay, where it's deepest, uh, that would fill. And so we actually, uh, painstakingly, I ran a, a, a final model that used the local bathymetry and had that bathymetry fill up as it as it should progress through the inundation phase and the desiccation phase. And we found that the, the results are reduced, you know, between, you know, uh, pretty significantly um, 30 to like 40%. And we, we put that in the paper that, you know, using a bathymetry um, uh, lake level changes things a little bit. Does that answer your question? What happens if, uh... Yeah, how do you determine the low stand? You 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 always take it down to. Uh, okay, uh, so the lake, zero fill, lake and then the lake is is at uh, its maximum height for so long, and then it precipitously drops, which mm -hmm. probably isn't true. And what happens if you don't go all the way to zero, but you go down to half full, and you don't know it because those shorelines are are always probably always buried. Okay, yeah, um, yeah. We don't. We uh, I would uh, one here. If I go back to uh, actually the results here, uh, one of the lakes actually doesn't desiccate fully. That's actually the very first lake, and that's uh, based off of Tom's Rockwell time uh, the timings of the lakes. So we actually do have one example where a lake hasn't fully desiccated, but uh, you know, it's just a modeling assumption that we had to make, and the shoreline is pretty well constrained um, because it's like actually you can see the bathtub rings, um, and of course there would be changes, but hopefully those changes are are pretty marginal to the overall stress. Yeah, but the bathtub rings have to be separate rated, you know, yeah, you're, yeah. in in order to see, see them and identify them. And what if what if uh, there are other shoreline stands that just sit on top of something, something earlier. I, I just don't. Yeah. I, I'm trying to understand the uniqueness of this time history, uh, and uh, in a in a lot of ways, I should be asking these questions to Tom, who did the geology of all this, uh, uh, than than to you. But Tom's not available, and you are so. Go ahead and ask <laughs> um, Yeah, I, uh, I, I'm not. I kind of, I, I yeah, I don't know how 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 else to answer your question. Um, the, you know, we we had to make assumptions in the model, and you know, we we can't constrain everything. And I think I think as far as like um, order dependence goes, I think that's you know a much higher order, um, you know. Uh, issue or problem um and and i'm there actually is a i had talked to um dave samwell on this problem and one of the reasons we wanted to use uh this lake imprint or this this footprint right here is because it's the same footprint exact same footprint used in prior and prior models so we wanted to keep a sort of consistency through throughout the different works and uh you know, there in the future, I'm sure they're going to have better models of this, and there's actually new lidar measurements uh, to the south that are improving our understanding of where the lake, uh, the lake boundaries were. So, 
yeah, I, that says, I think that's all the information I can, can, can share on this. Okay, well, uh, Bell's on on the air right now. Maybe she has something to add to this. Go ahead, Bell, take over if you can. Does anyone want to help me? I, I was just... <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't be there in person. I um, yeah, no was hoping I'd be able to come in. But I can I can jump here to help out uh, answer Tom's question a little bit I think which is that um, because the lake is filled by input from the Colorado River diversion there isn't it, there isn't really uh, a reason to expect that it would ever be maintained at a high stand at, at a at a shoreline level other than the high stand shoreline because if the water was diverted in it would fill all the way up to the point where it would spill over, which is that 13 meter shoreline. Um, and then when the river was diverted away, it would desiccate and there's there's no reason why it would ever be maintained at a lower level. So I think it's, that is a reasonable assumption uh, to make in this particular case. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. And thanks for your talk, Riley. Oh, thank you, thank you. I have a question. Uh, you, you mentioned in your talk the Wenchuan earthquake yeah. and its possible connection to the Zipping Bu Reservoir. The Zipping Bu Reservoir has a dimension of about 10 kilometers, and uh, whereas the fault is of the order of 300 kilometers long. Mm. I guess it's that makes it similar in some ways to your proposed connection between uh, the, the Salton Sea and, and uh, large earthquakes in, in mm -hmm. the uh, High magnitude seven or so range. Mm -hmm. in, in, in both cases, uh, the Zipping Booth Reservoir connection in particular kind of strains credibility, considering mm -hmm. that, you know, even though the hypocenter is uh, in, in the vicinity of the Zipping Booth Reservoir, um, it, it's a very small area where the hydrological effects mm -hmm. could have had an uh, an influence on on, on this what, magnitude 7.8 earthquake. It was 7.8. So, yeah. and, and I'm just wondering if you don't have a similar problem here where the mm -hmm. salt in the sea is a, a, smart, a far smaller dimension than mm -hmm. the major earthquake uh, up along that portion. I mean, yeah. there, there, yeah. Yeah, there seems to have been a bit of a plate re reorganization because Imperial Valley Fault seems to be the most active element in that general area, at least yeah. south of the Salton Sea and yeah. um, in, in New Mexico. That's a that's a really good question. Um, uh, so there's uh, obviously, there's, like you said, there's there's a lot of faults in this area, and, and in fact, uh, the brothers' paper that I mentioned at the start of the talk actually looked at the normal faults. Um, within this extensional regime that um, and their work uh, suggested that the, the, the lake itself uh, probably didn't contribute that much stress on the, on the Southern China Dress Fault, but per probably triggered normal faults that then increased coolant failure stress on the Southern China Dress Fault, which is totally, a, a, you know, a potential that could have occurred as well. Um, and someone at SCAC once asked me, he's like, you only model one fault. Where's the, what about the other fault? You know, and I was like, well, yeah, save those for the other papers, right? <laughs> Just joking, but uh, I'm I'm definitely not hopefully going to do this again. Um, but uh, but this uh, this uh, uh, this this lake had effects on um, uh, the other faults in the area, definitely. And um, uh, it's interesting. Uh, again, I I do I I am really curious about the idea of you know putting more of the fault to failure. And that's what happened with the long mentioned, uh, I think it's called the long mentioned fault, LSA. And, and it's, uh, uh, you can see in the modeling efforts, like, 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 you, like you said, it, you know, the, the stress at the hypocenter, pretty, pretty negligible, but they looked at the port pressure across the entire interface of the fault, because they took the, and the fault is this weird sort of curved uh, shape. And it had been, uh, the, the recurrence interval time had been accelerated across all of that. Uh, portion. So the idea being that if you have a, a, a trigger and the whole thing goes as like a cascading rupture, that's that, that's something that's really fascinating that I'm curious to learn more about. But but yeah, um, potentially if this is a triggering spot and the whole fault uh, went to you know it's where it's currently uh, or like the section that's locked, it maybe maybe yeah. Yeah, thank you, thank you. There there are a few other questions in the chat here that have touched on topics that we. Uh, 
been talking about, but I wanted to give those folks a chance to expand on it if they wanted to. So, Ian um, had a question about um, the effects of partial lake fillings as well. Um, is there something you wanted to add to that conversation and or as a separate question? Hi, yeah, I just, you know, we do have evidence from some of the sites uh, deeper in the Salton Sea that there were partial fillings. And so I wanted to know if you were considering or um, could kind of talk about what the impacts of that would be. Um, you know, there, uh, just, there's just a couple sites, there's not good timing on that. So it would, it would be, you know, coming up with the right um, sort of approach to modeling it. But if you had some thoughts thinking about if you did have partial filling events, what would those do to your model? Thanks. Oh, that's a that's a really interesting question. Um, I think uh, yeah, it would it would it would it would contribute to uh, to failure. I mean, anytime anytime the lake seems to fill, it contributes to failure. I think the if if this filling was in the same shape as the Salton Sea, right from the um, the 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 uh, the uh, lowest uh, the lowest depth here is actually a slide that I didn't include in the talk, um, where you can see the actual stress changes from the Salton Sea. Um, this is again for a point. Uh, these are for different points across the fault. Um, but you can see that, uh, you know, even small changes in um, um, the load will contribute to uh, positive coolant failure stress. Uh, and so, like, I'm I'm not sure exactly when these timings are, but if you, if you if you had it maybe in this drier period or somewhere back here, um, uh, yeah, you would you, you we would expect to see these sort of these sort of stress changes uh, increasing. Cool and failure stress. I hope that answers your question. Yes, it does. Thank you. It looks like Ruth had a question expanding on the a long strike extent of the effects of this poor elasticity um, related to some of our earlier questions. Ruth, did you want to um, expand on that? Um, yeah, so this is um, very closely related to Art McGar's good question about the a long strike extent. Um, but this is a question also just for how we understand earthquake uh, mechanics. We don't really know what sets off an earthquake, how you end up with a magnitude 5 versus a magnitude 7.9. Um, so are you, uh, I'm hoping in the in the near future, planning on modeling things along strike to see how they look and also what does the picture look like with depth? Because here like this lot is um, for seven kilometer depth. But I think in uh, the Coulomb failure stress, uh, figures that you showed before when the movie you also showed the um how, how things are affected with depth so are you planning mm -hmm. on i'm hoping continuing i do feel sorry for you with abacus so <laughs> i originally did work with abacus long long ago and i've also worked oh, with wow. students with abacus and it's not fun so i hope you can find a easier program to use uh, for geoscientists <laughs> anyway in the future sometime <laughs> but now that you've struggled through abacus you are an expert at it anyway i, I was wondering <laughs> about the a long strike for both the stress um the coolant failure stress and then also the stressing rate if you're um thinking of looking at in the future at, at that in the future well uh yeah the uh that's a good question uh I, I i would like to learn more about that definitely and i think that uh I we have the stress results, right? The abacus will output the stress tensor, um, and we can manipulate that stress tensor any way we want. So uh, hopefully, uh, I'm not super familiar with uh, that uh, met that method, but I, I would assume that you could probably get it to uh, uh, to be a long strike by just manipulating the the stress tensor. Uh, but we could we could look at that, yeah, and um, and then just you know add a sort of hypothetical. Uh, uh, stressing rate from some sort of uh, dislocation model or you know maybe something more elaborate but but uh, i don't want to run any more models but uh, <laughs> but uh maybe we could use the current results to do a you know a quick mm -hmm. uh, calculation like that that'd be cool yeah that's a really great idea thank you yeah no i would need to see like how far how, how far even if you just did the stress and uh, stress change instead of the stressing rate change um just to see how how far along uh, how long, how far along the Southern San Andreas Fault you can get. Yeah, thank you. And I, I really liked your talk. I, I really appreciate how you explained on really complicated concepts really well. And and this is a really good work that you've done. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So due to time, I think we'll have our last question from Andy Barber. Um, and it's got two thumbs ups on the chat. So it's a popular question. Andy, you want to ask your question? Two thumbs up. All right. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I too thought thought you guys did a really good job on the study, and the correlation is really fascinating. Um, I guess my question is sort of related to 
other in the you know evidence of this showing up on other major faults in the region given the geographic extent of a full lake Cahia. i'm you know i'm not necessarily aware of all the paleo seismology or you know studies out there but wouldn't we need to see a similar pattern on the imperial fault the perhaps even the san Jacinto fault or even faults further south into the into mexico for example so that's yeah. that's the basis of my question yeah that's a that's a really great question and tom tom rockwell uh co-author on the paper he uh he he has been trying to get funding and trying to get people out there to get more more paleo seismic uh, studies uh, and 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 get more evidence on on this effect, uh, uh, or you know maybe lack thereof. So uh, it would be really interesting to get more studies out there. Uh, and yeah, I, I I I would love to see it as well. I don't want to go out and dig more holes, but uh, I'll, I'll definitely uh, be interested to see the the effects. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, nice talk. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. All right, folks, with that, uh, let's thank our speaker one more time. Thank you. Anybody ever had more questions?